Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. The summer of 2022 just won't quit. Fun fact, even if you've been vaccinated and had COVID, you can still get COVID again. We've all learned that the hard way this week. We hope you haven't, but if you have, hopefully you can sit back and relax and enjoy this walk down memory lane with us. This week, because we're all feeling like crap, we decided to go with the theme of fecal matters. So that's a funny joke, if we were able to laugh, which we're all kind of too tired to do right now. But my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Our first link comes from Live Science by Tara Santora, and this is called What Did People Use Before Toilet Paper Was Invented? Do we want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna find out because oh, this is what I've chosen to kick our podcast off with. But you may be delighted to know that Susan Morrison, who is a medieval literature professor at Texas State University, She's authored a book called Excrement in the Middle Ages, Sacred <laughs> Filth and Chaucer's Fico Poetics, uh, published in 2008, uh, a recent tome. Right at the height of the financial crash. <laughs> you know, you got to occupy your time somehow. And lo and behold, this, this thing still has legs, right? <laughs> but she goes into sort of the challenge that, you know, most of the material we don't have because it's organic and just disappeared. So the way that we've been able to recover some of the samples, including some with traces of feces, as well as depictions of toilet paper's precursors in art and literature. You know, of course, there have always been things committed to pottery or frescoes in ancient times that depict all manner of human existence. And frankly, without those, we would not have a lot of information because it can be really difficult to excavate and scavenge and figure out exactly what was being done because these are mostly organic materials. But people have used everything from their own hands to corn cobs or even snow to clean up after bowel movements. And this has happened all throughout history. One of the oldest materials on record for this purpose is the hygiene stick, which dates back to China over 2000 years ago, according to a 2016 study. These were also referred to as bamboo slips were basically just wooden or bamboo sticks wrapped in cloth. During the Greco-Roman period, they cleaned their derrieres with another stick called a tersorium, which had a sponge at one end, and it was left in public bathrooms for communal use. Mm. I wish that facial expressions made sounds because my <laughs> face right now. <laughs> you know, that being said, some people argue that the tesorium may not have been used to clean people's behinds, but rather the bathrooms they defecated in. And they did have a cleaning process for this. You would clean a tesorium by dumping it in a bucket of salt or vinegar water, or by dipping it in running water that flowed beneath the toilet seat. So, mm. you know, keeping sanitary has been a thing that we have been aware of for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. The Greeks and Romans also used these ceramic pieces that were rounded in the shape of an oval or a circle called pesoi. Archaeologists have been able to find these relics with traces of feces on them, as well as an ancient wine cup that features a man wiping his bum with pesoi. So that's where the 
art has brought this thing to life so we could understand how it was being used. That's so odd. Like, imagine <laughs> if your coffee mug just had a guy sitting on a toilet wiping his butt. Like, that's just such an odd thing to put on your art. You know, you say that, but toilet humor has persisted yeah. for a really, really long time. Like, the fart joke is old and mm-hmm. still new. I mean, yeah. you do a fart or a poop joke around a six-year-old, there's something fundamentally funny about this kind of thing. Sure. So it may have been like a novelty item that happened to persist. <laughs> like, like the medieval version of Spencer's, like that's where you went exactly. to get your, your 100%. medieval gag gift. <laughs> you makes old... me think of those naughty Calvin stickers, you know? Mm, from yes, Calvin exactly. That's yeah. true. We have a long and storied history of this, but yeah. I will say that in the case of these ceramic discs, the material is not really great because it causes skin irritation, external <laughs> hemorrhoids, The Greeks also had another use for these ceramic pieces. They would inscribe the name of their enemies when voting to ostracize them. And so after the vote, they (laughs) may have wiped their feces on their enemies' names. You know, a little bit of purging some of that vitriol, if you will. In Japan in the 8th century AD, people used another type of wooden stick called a chugi to clean both the outside and inside of the anus, literally putting a stick up their butts. (laughs) (laughs) There have also been a lot of other materials that ancient history has shown us, like water, leaves, grass, stones, animal furs, seashells. In the Middle Ages, people also used moss, sedge, hay, straw, and even pieces of tapestry. Okay. I'm assuming these were like (laughs) scrap pieces, not like there's a tapestry on the wall and I'm just going to conveniently reach out. When you got to go. Yeah. Or, you know, just in the same way that you inscribe the name of your enemies on these ceramic discs, maybe it was a tapestry that depicted something politically or had a feature of a king you didn't particularly like. That's mm-hmm. that's one way to kind of demonstrate your dissatisfaction with uh, elected <laughs> officials. Next link. Next link. This article comes from popularmechanics.com and the title is... It's hard to poop on the moon. NASA <laughs> Sorry. wants you to make it easier. Yay! Well, that's nice of them. I mean, they've got their heart in the right place, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Their heart, so- you say. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I-, I expected this with this article. Uh, the subtitle to this one is, Have a good space toilet idea? It needs to hold 500 grams of diarrhea. Oh, oh good. <laughs> I, you know, it's nice to have your parameters. As any project manager can tell you, you need to know what the expectations are. I'd oh, love yeah, to absolutely. think about how they got has, to that number, too. <laughs> yeah, this one has quite good requirements that's listed at the end. So essentially, NASA is, is hosting a contest uh, <laughs> for your toilet ideas that will work in space. So NASA plans to return to the moon. Uh, we do know which rocket the astronauts will launch on, what capsule they'll be cramped in, and how they might land on the lunar surface. But there's one critical mystery NASA still has yet to solve. How will they poop? So... <laughs> Enter the Lunar Loo Challenge. I think that's the official name. (laughs) You got to brand it. I mean, if you're outsourcing for basically, are they offering any kind of compensation or monetary reward for the winner? They are. Okay. Okay. Yeah. NASA's Tournament Labs and Human Landing System program has partnered with a Kickstarter-like platform called HeroX to sponsor a competition. These astronauts will be eating, drinking, and subsequently urinating and defecating in microgravity and lunar gravity. While astronauts are in the cabin and out of their spacesuits, they will need a toilet that has all the same capabilities as ones here on Earth. Apollo-era astronauts famously hated their toilet systems. 
the Apollo fecal containment device was essentially just a plastic bag that the crew would have to strap to their butts. <laughs> and yeah, Sorry. once they deposited their waste, the bags were either stored on the spacecraft or left just on the lunar surface, which I did not know. So apparently there's just poop on the moon. Just bags uh, everywhere. In bags. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh, during one mission, the poop actually escaped. So during the 1969 Apollo 10 mission, Commander Tom Stafford had to quickly take care of a stinky situation. Uh, he said, give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. <laughs> and yeah. that's on official, like, recorded transcripts of astronaut interactions. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's gotta be. It's gotta be. <laughs> uh, during the first space shuttle mission in 1981, astronauts had to unclog the smelly toilets, making for a messy scene. Frozen urine flushed on the Russian Mir space station actually damaged the station's solar panels over time, oh, no. which reduced their effectiveness by around 40%. Oh. Yeah, so fortunately over the years, NASA and the other space agencies have gotten a better handle on the business of going number one and number two. On the ISS, urine is sent through a network of hoses and is eventually recycled into drinking water. <laughs> Feces collected aboard the ISS are sucked into a canister, which is then shot back to the Earth, but it does burn up in the atmosphere, mm. so you don't have to worry about that. But now it is time for a new generation of space toilets. So NASA's <laughs> already working on a brand new toilet design called the Universal Waster Management System. They have several design and performance specifications that must be met before NASA can let the new Lou loose on the moon. <laughs> so it has to be able to accommodate the waste of two astronauts for at least 14 days. It has to work in both microgravity and lunar gravity. It mm -hmm. cannot use more than 70 watts of power. It cannot be smelly. Ah. It has to hold all sorts of waste, including urine, feces, vomit, diarrhea, and menstrual blood. Bonus points will be awarded to designs that can capture vomit without requiring the crew member to put his or her head in the toilet. <laughs> so like yeah. a, a funnel. They want like a vomit funnel attachment. Yeah, like a little nozzle, I guess. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. It has to accommodate both men and women, naturally. It has to be able to flush properly. It has to be quick and easy to clean because you don't want to be spending time hovering over the toilet with a scrub brush when you could be exploring the moon. Right. It has to be able to flush 500 grams, which is about two cups of diarrhea in one sitting. <laughs> and it has to be quiet, no louder than 60 decibels. Fair. NASA says it's already working on ways to adapt current designs, so submissions have to be different from what's already on the ISS. And in order to be seriously considered, it has to be simple and efficient. Hmm. So this isn't actually the first time that NASA has crowdsourced this particular problem. In 2017, the agency also launched its Space Poop Challenge, which requested help on designed toilets to be used while astronauts are strapped to their seats. Hmm. The Lunar Lou Challenge itself, the one they're doing now, is split into two categories. Technical, which is open to adults and junior. They want to encourage the next generation of space explorers, engineers, and scientists, and they know that students might think about this design problem without the same constraints as adults, especially because, you know, children mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. pooping. <laughs> so the junior category will accept submissions from students 18 and younger. There is a $35,000 grand prize mm. for the technical category, which will be split among the top three designs with 20000 going to first place, 10000 to the second place, and 5000 to the third place. 
They'll also receive a behind-the-scenes tour of NASA's Johnson Space Center and will have an opportunity to meet with NASA engineers and possibly an astronaut, but no promises, apparently. <laughs> They're uh, busy. You know, they've got a busy schedule. Yeah, they got a lot to do. Uh, the top three winners of the junior competition won't be eligible for the cash prize, but will walk away with some street cred and a NASA t-shirt, which I think is kind of bogus, yeah. but whatever. I mean, there must be like yeah. a legal liability thing for why they can't give money to the kids, but I feel like today's kids are smart. If you give them money, they'll perform. <laughs> they're not, yeah. A t-shirt is not going to win over anybody. Yeah, yeah. Today's children are very well aware of what the jig is with capitalism. Yeah, yeah. capitalism's no great secret. However, a t-shirt would make for some pretty sweet likes on the gram. So I could see maybe sort of a double hitter being attractive enough for the kids. Yeah, but in that yeah, case, it's going to have to be like a limited edition something because you could buy a NASA t-shirt online. I happen to know. Fair. <laughs> like, it's yeah. not a rare commodity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they're really targeting that very large, you know, engineer influencer subset of Instagram. Right. Mm -hmm. All the engineering nerds on the gram who are like... I mean, they're there. They're there. Uh, So the deadline to submit your materials, which is a PDF explaining how the toilet works and a neutral 3D CAD file, is August 17th, 2020 at 5pm Eastern. Judging will close on September 22nd, 2020, and the adult winners will be announced on September 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern, and junior winners will be announced on October 20th. So if you're listening and you feel inspired, uh, you could check out the Lunar Lou Challenge. Yeah, I feel like if one of our listeners does end up submitting to this challenge and winning, like I, I think we need a shout out. Like We spread the word. We're not going to design any toilets ourselves because we don't have that capability, but I think oh, yeah. you know we encourage you all to enter. Absolutely. And then hit us up when you yeah. win. <laughs> no demonstration videos, please. No, not necessary. We can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, good news, everyone. Hitler's toilet seat that was looted by a U.S. soldier during World War II is up for auction. Nice. Somebody who made a bunch of money with Dogecoin is going to buy it, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm actually really curious to know whether someone, like, what kind of person would actually yeah. buy this. But according to the auction company, and this is reported by the Hindustan Times, The family of the, quote, enterprising soldier has now decided to cash in on the two-piece wooden toilet seat with its lid removed. Oh, so they're keeping Um, half of it? Or they never had half of it? (laughs) I'm not sure if they actually took it, but let's see. They're expecting (laughs) this to fetch around 15 grand. There's a starting bid of five grand. The toilet seat is said to have been looted by a U.S. soldier from Hitler's private bathroom in his holiday home in the Bavarian Alps near Birch's Garden. Uh, It will be auctioned by Alexander Historical Auctions, LLC in Chesapeake City, Maryland on February 8th. So uh, I guess we could look up who actually bought the darn thing. About the toilet seat in particular, it measures 19 inches from front to back, 16 inches wide, has two chromed steel fittings. It is set in an old shadow box along with two photographs of the soldier and his immediate superior officer at the Eagle's Nest. It also contains a satirical anti-Hitler newspaper clipping. But the auction company says the items have remained untouched in the basement of the family's home, which I got to say has got to be like having a bit of a ghost in your house, right? Like, you know, it's there. You're not using it. You're not looking at it. But you know that something that touched Hitler's butt is in your basement. That's got to weigh on the psyche, man. I mean, it gives a new meaning to the phrase liquidating your assets. Like he's definitely... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got the golf clap for that one. Thanks. The story of how this was obtained... um, The soldier is one of the first American soldiers on the scene when they were allied with French troops to reach Hitler's home. 
The company, quoting a detailed letter from the soldier's son, said the soldier was told by senior officers to quote. Get what you want from the Berghoff.、Yeah. The Hindustan Times article does include a picture of it, and it's pretty lackluster. I、mm. gotta say, it looks wooden. It was painted with white. It's got some cracks in the paint. It just looks like a toilet seat, y'all. I mean, he could have lost <laughs> it and then just gotten another one. I mean, he's、oh, got the picture、exactly. that says he was there. How do you? I don't know. Nineteen forties <laughs> toilet seats are a dime a dozen. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, next link. Next link. This comes from theguardian.com and it's titled "Box Seat." Scientists solve the mystery of why wombats have cube-shaped poo. Oh yeah! So unique physiology allows the Australian marsupial to produce square-shaped feces that may aid communication. Oh!、Uh, so how wombats produce their cube-shaped poo has long been a biological puzzle, but now an international study has provided the answer to this unusual natural phenomenon. The cube shape is formed within the intestines and not at the point of exit, as previously thought,、Ooh. according to research published in Scientific Journal <laughs> Soft Matter、oh, no. on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I don't know. Did they make this journal just for this article? You know,、right. like it's so good. Or is it like all of the articles are feces related? Like this is、yeah. just I don't know. I want to see how thematic they are now. Okay, Soft Matter. Right. To look it up. I will.、Uh, don't miss out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>、uh, the paper expands on preliminary findings first presented at a meeting of the American Physical Society's Fluid Dynamics Division in Georgia in 2018. Doctors Scott Carver, wildlife ecologist at the University of Tasmania and one of the authors of the research paper, said there were wonderfully colorful hypotheses around, but no one had tested it. There was speculation that wombats had a square-shaped anal sphincter, or that the feces get squeezed between the pelvic bones, as well as the complete nonsense idea that wombats pat the feces into shape after they deposit them, just for fun. So you know, yeah, it's like it's like those old Play-Doh toys where you like push the pump down and it comes out in like a long tube shaped like a star. Yeah. <laughs> The project originated four years ago when Carver was dissecting a euthanized wombat hit by a car and noticed the cubes in the last meter of the wombat's intestine. Carver described it as an "isn't that odd" moment, <laughs>、uh, and he says, "You know, the thing that's striking is how do you produce cubes inside essentially a soft tube?"、Mm -hmm. The team of researchers in Australia, including the head veterinarian at Taronga Zoo, tested the tensile strings of the intestine. While physicists in the U.S., based at the Georgia Institute of Technology, created mathematical models to simulate the production of cubes. So we're now creating intestinal poop cube shaping mathematical models,、right. which is pretty cool, honestly. <laughs> I imagine the math majors who went into that thought, "This is what I'm going to use this for. This is important、yeah. stuff." Yeah. <laughs>、uh, so the team discovered big changes in the thickness of muscles inside the intestine, varying between two stiffer regions and two more flexible regions.、Huh. So Carver says the rhythmical contractions help form the sharp corners of the cube. So I guess you can kind of imagine the feces going through the intestine, and as it enters each segment, you know, it gets sort of shaped and firmed in between. And I'm almost imagining sort of like the different sections of like a multi-part bus, you know, where some are rigid、yeah. and some are flexible. That's cube-shaped, right? It can't be. <laughs> yeah. <sort laughs> Why <of> . not? <laughs> Anyways,、uh, when preliminary findings were presented in 2018, at that point, researchers believed there were four stiff and four flexible regions. But what final research has confirmed is that the wombat's intestine has two stiff and two flexible regions. When asked why wombats have this feature, Carver said one theory was that wombats, with their strong sense of smell, communicate with each other via feces, and that the cube shape helps prevent the feces from rolling away, which is. 
also a theory, you know, uh, not one that I would come up with. Yeah, but... I mean, doesn't say why you wouldn't want them to roll away, but I suppose, yes, it does prevent yeah. them from rolling away. Yeah, I don't really know if wombats live a lot on, like, hilly terrain, so I can't hmm. say. I I'll just accept it. Yeah. The researchers did also find that cube-shaped feces on an 8-degree slope rolled far less than spherical-shaped models. And Vogelnest aided the research by facilitating an ethically approved CT scan of a live wombat zoo resident, Lucy Liu. <laughs> and he said, uh, this is one of the more unusual research projects Taranga has been involved in. A bit quirky, but it does answer a very significant question. One that a lot of people ask. Do they? Like, I, I, yeah, I feel I like some wombat researchers ask, but I don't know if we can qualify that to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess if you're a zoologist and you yeah. work around wombats and you teach people about wombats, I can imagine lots of people being like, what the heck? Um, right. <laughs> but <laughs> as well as the benefits of better understanding wombats themselves, Carver said the discovery highlighted a new way of manufacturing cubes inside a soft tube, which could be applied to other fields of manufacturing, clinical pathology, and digestive health. <laughs> um, so we can learn from the wombat poop channels how to make cubes. Like, that's yeah. what we've come with, is we could make cube-shaped vitamin gummies or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm not totally sure what the proposed applications are. The article ends there <laughs> in a almost menacing way, in my opinion. Right. Right. <laughs> they won't roll away. Like, think yeah. of all the things you don't want to have roll away. If we make them cubes, they won't anymore. <laughs> that's very true. That's very, very true. So many things roll away from me all the time. <laughs> oh. Next link. Next link. All right, well, regular listeners of the podcast may remember back in January, we talked about some giant isopods that were feasting on dead alligators at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Is that mm. ringing any bells? So they, <laughs> these are the creatures that look like, oh, you call them roly-polies or doodlebugs. There's a lot of different names, but it's the little mm. crustaceans. But the ones that live underwater are like the size of a football. And they're actually predators. Like, they eat dead stuff, but they can also attack living creatures. There's actually Ooh. a video that's unrelated to the article, but it's in the article about... Uh, it's a video of a giant isopod attacking a living shark, like, on the Yikes! face. Yikes! So these things just became a lot scarier. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they are back in the news. Everyone to be very excited. Woohoo! Uh, the headline of this article from Sora News 24 is, Giant Undersea Bug in Toba Aquarium Poops. For the first time in two years. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? So, yeah. So, the uh, the Toba Aquarium in Japan has five of these giant isopods. And generally speaking, they haven't been pooping. You know, they're in a tank. They check the tank. There hasn't been any fecal matter for two years. What and, <laughs> yeah, I, it, you would think maybe, like, they're just missing it or something's happening. But it turns out, actually, they sort of know that these isopods have irregular feeding and digestion patterns. And their digestion is and can be very slow. And they've actually mm. had some on record that have lived as long as six years without eating at all. So they Whoa. seem to kind of be this sort of feast or famine cycle uh, just naturally. That's sort of what they do. Yeah, but the extended time period is extreme. Right, exactly. And the ones in the aquarium had been pooping a little more regularly before they went on this sort of two-year hiatus, I guess. <laughs> But more importantly, the feces that this one of the isopods pooped out, and it happened overnight, so they don't know which one of them pooped, the feces <laughs> contained scales from a fish that is not served by the aquarium. Meaning Wait. that the poop that came out of this isopod is from a meal eaten at least seven years ago before they came to the aquarium. What? So, I mean, it's it's an insanely long digestive system, but clearly, I mean, they're healthy and they're living. It's not, it's some sort of normal function, apparently. 
apparently it's enough to keep them alive. But uh, so anyway, this was very exciting for the, uh, you know, people working, the zoo, the zoologists at the aquarium. Uh, they posted about it. Uh, it became a social media sensation I'm in Japan. Sure. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the article links to a bunch of sort of celebratory animations and fan videos that people made. There's people dressed up in these isopod costumes. Uh, <laughs> some of the comments left on the aquarium's page were, this is the most relaxing news I've heard in months. And I... <laughs> I feel like this is a sign that things are finally getting back to normal. (laughs) I think possibly people are just sort of desperate for any sort of good news and they're willing to take a giant doodlebug pooping. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Some have actually, you know, questioned whether the isopod finally pooped because like the garden eels we talked about a few weeks ago, the visitors are finally gone from the aquarium. They're thinking maybe they were sort of holding off because they weren't feeling comfortable. They were getting a little shy. But uh, yeah, but nearly a decade of stress related incontinence. Like I, I, I feel for these little buggers. Yeah. No, Bugs. I mean, it, it can't have been comfortable. <laughs> I think I've, I'm good for him. I don't know. I mean, maybe now that one has done it, maybe the other four will say, OK, it's safe. It's safe. We'll all go ahead and, and poop in the next couple of days. I don't know. But uh, I assure you, this was entirely coincidental. I did not know you were going to be talking about farts and then I was going to be talking about poop. We had a real theme going on today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the butt stuff week. That's right. That's right. Now would probably be the time to mention that the uh, pandas that everybody can't get to have sex in the Chinese zoo, they're having sex now with all the visitors gone. So, you know, animals Aww. are just finally going back to their natural state once we stop looking at them all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Surveillance does that to folks, right? Nobody really cares to feel relaxed or even just adhere to natural biological functions when under a state of constant surveillance. That stuff's tough. That's right. Well, you know, I mean, maybe they just feel bad for the zoologist. They're like, every time we poop, they take it and they mess with it. And it feels like, you know, maybe maybe they were doing the zoologists a favor. You know, they were like, oh, we'll, we'll try to reduce the amount of poop you have to deal with. I don't know. So thoughtful. Yeah. But uh, anyway, the uh, giant isopods are cool little creatures, if a little bit terrifying, and hopefully they'll uh, have a little more relaxation in their future now. You know, good for them. That's astonishing, though. And and I think I'm going to have to, I know exactly the kind of article that I'm going to be following up with with the selection that I've got here, because you're right, a theme has definitely emerged. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from AARP.org, mm-hmm. and the title is something that's been all in all of our minds, Just Who Hoarded All That Toilet Paper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we so, all have our, our ideas, but I'm glad to see someone has an answer. Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And you probably won't be terribly surprised by this article, as I found it kind of landed in the realm of duh science. Right. So these nervous shoppers, like a plague of locusts, began descending in mid-March <laughs> to wipe retail stores clean of toilet paper and create a global shortage. Wipe them but, clean, you say. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a study it published in the online journal Plus One, PLOS One, found a number of factors, one of which was age. With hmm. increasing age, people tend to stockpile more toilet paper. Hmm. And the study suggests that older people may have been more eager to pair for strict self-isolation because they're more prone to experiencing the more severe symptoms of viral disease. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But also, people who feel more threatened by the pandemic stockpile more toilet paper in general. Hmm. Given that stockpiling is objectively unrelated to saving lives or jobs during a health crisis, right. this finding supports the notion that toilet paper functions as a purely subjective symbol of safety. 
<laughs> Americans also stockpiled more toilet paper than Europeans, which the study suggested may be because of larger U.S. packaging, whereas we go up to 36 rolls compared to Europe, which has only up to 16 rolls. But the study does not mention that bidets are far more widely used in Europe than in the U.S. Right, that's so true. So it might indicate less toilet paper. I was going to chalk it up uh, to just American greed, but you're right. They may actually not need it as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, conducted the study. And from March 23rd to 29th, they surveyed more than 1,000 adults from 35 countries, including 250 U.S. adults. Hmm. And in terms of personality factors that make some people more prone than others to fear the pandemic, they concede that is much more elusive. But generally speaking, they found that about 20% of the hoarding could be explained based on people's dispositional tendency to worry a lot and generally feel anxious. Mm, yeah. And they also suggest that another predictor of stockpiling was among people with very high conscientious personalities, which include traits of organization, diligence, perfectionism, and prudence. Well, that sounds a lot mm -hmm. more pleasant than anxiety. It's like you can look at yourself <laughs> as a highly anxious person. Or you can look at yourself as a planner who, you know, right. is prepared. <laughs> I'm just super. Super yeah. organized, not operating out of total fear and paranoia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I guess when you put those two things together, you get preppers. Yeah, for sure. You uh, want to, yeah. yeah. It kind of is like, yeah, we don't really know, but it's anxious people and people who would actually be affected by the pandemic. So fair enough, I guess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got to, the study came out of Germany. So it's not surprising that they found, well, Europeans were better about this than Americans were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's all this article had to say. I would be very interested to know if this happened during 1918 as well, though I bet it did. Yeah, I don't know. How much? I, I don't know. Now you have to get into the history of toilet paper, which a whole, yeah. whole different article. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, I'm going to get back into our public waste conversation. <laughs> Forbes has a neat article by Suzanne Rowan Kelleher. Why Tokyo's new transparent public restrooms are a stroke of genius. Are they, though? Uh, like, <laughs> 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 well, the article starts off with, at first, it's hard to fathom how a public restroom with transparent walls could possibly help ease toilet anxiety. Mm -hmm. But a counterintuitive design by one of Japan's most innovative architects aims to do just that. So even in Japan, where the restrooms have a higher standard of hygiene than much of the rest of the world, a lot of the residents fear that public toilets are dark, dirty, smelly, and scary. I think we in America can probably relate sure. to some of that, even though mm -hmm. we don't have nearly as many public toilets as they do in Japan, usually, you know, go into a store or an office or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a nonprofit, Nippon Foundation. They launched something called the Tokyo Toilet Project, and they asked 16 architects to renovate 17 public toilets located in the public parks of Shibuya, which is one of the busiest commercial areas of Tokyo. And the one in particular by Pritker Prize-winning architect Shigeru Ban. It's got these really beautiful, like colorful, transparent, almost like stained glass, but a single color. What they've photographed has like shades of sea green, lime green, and kind of a blue. And you can see right through them. But once they're occupied, they go opaque. And the idea behind making these transparent was to make these bathrooms accessible for everyone, regardless of gender, age, or disability. So you can actually see, is this a bathroom? Can I use this? Should I use mm -hmm. this? And the idea was not only will people feel comfortable using these public toilets, but it will foster a spirit of hospitality for the next person. So if you blow it up <laughs> and leave it, people gonna know, right. even if you, you know, leave the scene or whatever, they're gonna be like, yeah, that's, we're not gonna use this stall here. 
at night they even light up like beautiful lanterns because of that transparent tinted glass and so they function as kind of art projects you know while they're not being used and I don't know I'm kind of a fan like I know that this is something that a lot of European countries and now in Japan they've started to kind of play around with a little bit more it would be lovely to see something like that happen a little bit closer to home. You see, I'm conceptually, I get it. And I'm fine with the idea of like, oh, it's transparent when nobody's in it. But you go inside, shut the door, and then it becomes opaque. Except I've seen some pictures and it really doesn't look that opaque. Like when someone's <laughs> in it, it's more, I mean, it's like frosted glass. Like you can still kind of see these muddy shapes of what's going on in there. And I think unless you can really make the technology make it opaque, opaque, I just can't see people being willing to use that. I, I think it would be something that you'd have to maybe ethically observe it in situ before right. going inside. So just, <laughs> hey, you go first and I'll watch and make sure. Right. And then, okay. So be the creep standing there watching other people use the bathroom <laughs> and then you'll know it's safe. <laughs> I mean, let's just install some cameras, right. set up a blockchain ledger, <laughs> have people check in and out, you know. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay, this one is completely different. <laughs> it's titled, How Did Knights in Armor Go to the Toilet? Yeah, how did they? Yeah. I've never thought about that. Yeah. It's from HistoryExtra.com, and it's a quickie. When William the Conqueror invaded in 1066, he wore just a long male shirt, so answering nature's call was pretty straightforward. <laughs> but... It was a different prospect when Italian and German craftsmen developed full plate armor in the 1400s, which was a boon on the battlefield, but vexing for a knight in the latrine. <laughs> and suits of armor still didn't have a metal plate covering the knight's crotch or buttocks, as this made riding a horse difficult. But those areas were protected by strong metal skirts flowing out around the hips. And under this dangled a short chainmail shirt to prevent an enemy jabbing anything sharp upwards between the legs. And beneath that, a knight also wore quilted cotton leggings so his limbs wouldn't chafe. <laughs> but to stop the steel leg plates sliding painfully down onto the ankles, they had to be held up by a waist belt or by being attached to the torso plate. So while wearing all that, a knight desperate for the toilet would have most likely needed the assistance of his squire to lift or remove the rear cullet so that he could squat down. The fact, however, that the leg armor was often suspended tightly from the waist belt worn over the leggings might have required it to be detached first before a chivalric chap could comfortably <laughs> drop his trousers. This would have been a particular nuisance if the knight was suffering from dysentery, so it was likely that he may have simply chosen to soil himself. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it'll be more scary on the battlefield. If somebody's coming at me yeah. with a sword and they're also covered in feces, That's it adds a little bit of horror to it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, That that's very true. You know, use every weapon that you have. Right, right. <laughs> Animals will do it. They'll, they'll pee on you if they're scared of you. So it makes sense that we yeah. should do it too. Why not? Yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. I wish I could say for sure we'll be back next week, but at this point, we're just doing our best. So keep us in your thoughts. We're going to try to rest up. We hope you do the same. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>